from Dr. Peter Pronovost. You're listening to Micro Moments with Peter. Today, we are very happy to welcome Dr. Trig Dolber to the podcast. Uh, Dr. Dolber is involved with the development of complex care programs and expansion of integrated behavioral health services here at UH um, and throughout the state of Ohio. He also serves as the Assistant Professor of Psychiatry and Internal Medicine at Case Western Reserve University and completed his training in psychiatry and internal medicine at Emory University. Dr. Dolber joins us today to discuss a current program he's involved in called Personalized Care for Complex Lives, and we are excited to learn more. Peter? Kelsey, thanks so much. And Dr. Dolber, it's uh, great to have you here, and I hope it's okay that I refer to you as Trig, and please call me Peter. Of course. You know, Trig, your background of being medicine and behavioral health is, I think, allows you to bring a unique perspective, and I would say perhaps being a system thinker, to help we address this devilishly difficult problem of these complex patients that suffer immensely and costs extravagantly to our healthcare system. And so the audience knows, you know, for many commercial employers, one or 2% of the population may consume 40 or 50% of their cost. You know, the numbers vary, but the point is there's some, a small number of very, very complex patients consume a lot of cost. And the literature has shown, despite trying things, we haven't been highly effective at uh, resolving that suffering or their cost. I, we think it's perhaps because of the approaches have still been reactive and transactional rather than proactive and relational. But Trig, maybe um, you've been doing breathtaking work here. The results are astounding. Tell us a little bit about how the mindset or what's your mental model of how you approach this problem differently, and then some of what you're doing, and we can maybe get into some of your results. Oh, well, first of all, thanks uh, so much for the praise. Um, And second of all, uh, to the question, you know, I think really um, what what makes the big difference is we're calling this complex care, but healthcare approaches to it so far haven't really treated it like a complex problem. Uh, if you look at complexity science, kind of the basic general idea is a reductionist approach is not going to solve a complex problem. And healthcare by nature is reductionist. We break things down into organ systems. If you can break everything down into its individual parts and pieces uh, and fix each one of those things, the whole is going to be understood and, and do well. Um, and I think that's where that's where we kind of got lost uh, with patients who have complex lives, is we say, hey, you know, we're not considering all the social things that are going on in their life, all the social determinants. Now we're thinking about that. We're making sure that they're getting their mental health problems addressed. They're getting connected to a counselor, a psychiatrist, whatever they need. And for some people, that's enough. But when it's not enough, I think the reason is because we're still just breaking things down into a list and treating them one by one, rather than zooming out to see the whole big picture and really think about someone's life as a as a system. Yeah, you know, Trig, fantastic. Let me just delve into that a little deeper for the audience, so that because this complex versus complicated problem is a key concept in healthcare that I think we don't know. Complicated problems are like baking a cake or in my previous work, treating infections with a checklist. You have a very clear outcome measure. You have interventions that you know reduce that outcome. And you have confidence that if I do those things, 
I'm going to get the outcome I want. In complex care or problems, you have none of those. You often have multiple completing outcomes that you're not care. You're not at all clear about what interventions work or if you do them that you're going to get the results. So I was just building upon that trig. And I think it's a really key distinction. And uh, tell me more about how you then took that concept and applied it into the programs you designed. Well, when we first started, it was all about just building a relationship with a patient and getting to know them well enough that we could understand what is going on in their life beyond what's on the surface. Because if you really want to map out, um, you know, if you want to make a, a diagram or a chart uh, that says how everyone's shows how everyone's problems are connected, uh, you need to know what those problems are and you need to understand really how they're influencing each other. And when we did that, um, we had to play around with it and adjust it and see what mattered and what didn't. But what we found was that understanding people's behaviors on a, on a deep level of avoidance uh, was what actually, uh, what actually seemed to be driving in a major way most people's uh, uh, networks of complexity. Um, and what I mean- Let me just question you on that because that's an amazing statement because most people broke complex patients down to my heart failure, my ulcer, my obesity. It sounds like that- behavior was the underlying theme that aligned everything for you. Uh, it, it really was. And maybe I'll just give, you know, an example of what that might look like. Um, so, uh, you know, we had a patient and this is, this is a conglomeration of, of patients. I, I'm not giving a specific example, um, but someone who, uh, you know, their BMI was maybe in the fifties, uh, you know, on CPAP, but not wearing it, um, uh, have diabetes that's, you know, fairly, you know, poorly controlled, uh, has a toe ulcer that keeps uh, reopening uh, up and, and not healing well, um, and is also, uh, is also smoking, uh, say, and has been struggling to quit smoking uh, and, and kind of hiding that problem. Um, and when we engage with the patient, uh, and we saw what they were getting admitted for. It was really, we started off saying, oh, you know, if we can help, if we can help with weight loss, uh, we can help control the diabetes um, and, uh, you, know, you know, helping to quit smoking is, is going to be a part of that process. And we were just running up against a wall. And what we found was when you, when you recognize that this patient had had a previous fairly traumatic experience where they had lost a family member to um, uh, a serious uh, medical condition and was very anxious about uh, the same thing happening to themselves. Whenever they try to engage on their own healthcare, as much as it distressed them, they couldn't stay focused on, on the problem at hand. They couldn't make the lifestyle changes they need to. They couldn't adhere to recommendations because when they tried to stick with something, it became too overwhelming and distressing. They had to kind of separate from it. This distress led to you know, having a short fuse, becoming more irritable. Um, and this led to problems with not only healthcare providers, but family members. They couldn't get the support they needed from family members uh, because um, they had such a short fuse with people and they were walking around uh, anxious and angry all the time. Uh, and smoking was helping them deal with that. And once we started to connect the pieces with all these things and say, hey, 
you know, as you're smoking and as you're stress eating, I, I should have mentioned stress eating also as a way of, of dealing with uh, uh, all the things that are going on. As you're doing those things, those are feeding into your health problems, which in turn are making you more anxious and more distressed. And that's where you see this reinforcing feedback loop. And we, uh, you know, we really develop this for all our patients now. We start to look at what are your avoidance behaviors when you feel distress, what's causing the distress, what do you do? What does your mind try and get you to do to escape from it? And what's that habit pattern that's formed over the years? How does that create problems, which then reinforce the initial problems? And then you see this, this idea of emergence, which is something in complexity where through the way all these variables interacting, new problems start to emerge uh, that you wouldn't necessarily have predicted. Wow, Trig, this is uh, just an amazing story. I mean, I'd like to unpack a couple of themes because one of the things that I heard, and you're quite gifted in this, is we often say the secret of great care is love. And, you know, that concept of agape or not judging people, it seems like that's a key step of your initial program because I think it sounds like many of these people who are suffering feel judged by the health system and they judge themselves. Um, and then after that, Trey, talk a little bit. It sounds like what you've uncovered is this is the power of anxiety driving habits and people forming habits and trying to break those habit loops uh, that are causing people suffering in their life. Well, um, I'll talk about the habit loops. I did want to come back to the the idea of love, though, and relationship building just for a minute, if that's okay. Um, of course. When you're talking to someone about how they're engaging in behaviors that are unhelpful, you can see how that could easily turn into a confrontation. Um, and so when we do that with people, uh, this is after we've already shown that we're listening. The only way you can understand the behaviors that someone is engaging in and really understand them and not just say, this is my guess. This is what I bet you're doing. Um, but the only way you can really understand that is to have listened to someone extensively, um, repeated back the things they've told you, reconceptualized them, fed them back, how you're understanding what they're saying, and you really start to build a trust, a trusting relationship that way. Um, and then you just start to reframe and say, hey, I wonder if, you know, you mentioned this over here. I wonder if the reason that you're doing that is because that, does that seem right? Or do you think that could be like, if you take a minute and reflect on it uh, in, in this specific example, what were you feeling, you know, in your body when that happened? Do you think it could be, you think it could be that? And if not, then, okay, yeah, yeah I, I was probably a, I guess I was off base on that. I wonder if it could be something else. You know, it's a very, it's a very uh, kind of open approach. Um, and not only that, uh, having the open uh, approach with people and showing empathy and listening, but also being flexible in terms of your goals. Uh, so I might go into, I might look at someone's chart and say, oh, their A1C is out of control and their blood pressure is not well managed and their heart failure. They keep having exacerbations and you know, I need to prevent those from happening. And I do, you know, I, I can't stop my mind from doing that. Um, but when I'm meeting with a patient, my goal isn't to, to do those things. My goal is to help them live the life that they want. And there's an element of faith in this too, which is if I can kind of let go and say, I'm going to help this patient discover what's important to them, see how their behaviors are taking away from what's important to them and let them discover on their own what they'd like to do instead. Uh, that their health conditions will get better and that those are part of that. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like this beautiful combination of empathy and hope, 
that you bring to the discussion with them. Yeah. Um, and I didn't answer your question about uh, anxiety, uh, but it, it is something that we just see coming up so often. Um, and the idea there is in so many different uh, elements of or, or schools of thought and psychology really are, are converging on this idea now. And it's really it's like a really ele elegant and, uh, you know, simple concept that is really powerful and can be extended to so many different situations. Uh, but this idea of there's some kind of underlying distress in any given moment, you might be feeling some distress and your mind is going to say, oh, I don't like that. You know, you need to we need to make that stop. This could be anxiety, it could be pain, uh, it could be it could be anything unpleasant that that we don't like. It can be something really small that we might not even be aware of, or it can be something huge, like uh, you know something related to a grief or a trauma. But whatever it is, your something comes up that the mind says, get away from that, uh, and that's that's done well for us uh, in terms of you know evolving as a species, right? And not just humans, but all species. The way we survive is by getting away from things that are a threat to us. And that is great in the external world, getting away from something that's a threat, problem solving something, uh, you know, that's that's a danger to me or, or making things better so that I can survive, thinking my way out of out of uh, out of um, unhelpful situations. These are all useful skills, but our minds then, you know, our minds aren't that they're not that diverse in terms of what they can do. They try and replicate the same uh, the same technique. Uh, so we use the same technique on ourselves, on our internal environment, and that's where we run into problems. Um, and this is true for every one of us, uh, but you can harness this, especially with people who have have followed that, followed their mind's advice to the point where it's created really deeply ingrained habits that that reinforce these um, uh, these really detrimental uh, feedback loops. Um, and so, you know, I gave a, a couple examples of those just now with smoking and and eating. Uh, and I think probably any one of us could relate to eating. I know I can. Uh, you know, I eat all the time when I'm not hungry and I'm, you know, I just need a little piece of chocolate right now to feel better. You know, I, I'll admit to that. I, I, I certainly do it. Um, but but it can get a lot more subtle than that. You can you can eat, we can even think of depression as as uh, a behavior that gets reinforced. So the way these the way these behaviors become habits uh, is there's a trigger I feel distress there's a behavior I engage in something my mind tells me to do and then there's a reward some kind of reward eating chocolate gives me a, a momentary relief from whatever stress I'm feeling but this can even happen with something like depression if I'm feeling overwhelmed and hopeless uh, and my mind is like you know what just give up it doesn't even matter there's a sense of relief in that even though it ends up making me feel terrible. And then I, I become inactive and my health problems get worse and I get more depressed. Uh, my mind gets stuck in that habit pattern because it can keep going into, it just it doesn't matter, just give up. And that little bit of sense of relief is a reward that keeps it going. The same thing can happen in anxiety in, in a very general sense as we understand it, worrying, uh, right? If I'm worrying, I'm trying to problem solve uh, a situation in my mind and it's not getting anywhere. And I, I might recognize this. I'm going in this worry loop. It's not getting any better. What if this? What if that? Oh, no. But what if this? Oh, no. I'm coming back to it again. And our mind, the reason the mind keeps us in this habit loop is because the problem solving feels like it's doing something, even though it's not. There's a little bit of reward that comes with solving a problem. So all, there are all these subtle kind of avoidance behaviors that we have to be aware of that can drive the larger feedback loop that leads to all kinds of other health and social problems.
Yeah. Thanks. I mean, your message is so hopeful because for years we've known not just complex patients, but basically any patient with a chronic disease, if they have a behavioral health diagnosis, their costs are over two and three times higher. But we didn't really understand why. I think you're giving us a mechanism perhaps that allows us then to do intervention. So, so let's move into, tell me a little bit about more, what do you do with these patients? So what, like, you know, what's your program and what are some of the initial results that you're seeing? Right. So um, it, this isn't a constant state of evolution, I feel, but there's some principles that that we've been carrying forward and I don't think will change. Uh, it's a multidisciplinary team. So right now it's me uh, as well as a dietitian and a therapist and a social worker. And so we try and hit all the pieces of the puzzle that we think are uh, most important in most of the feedback loops that we come across um, and make sure there's someone to handle each of those uh, elements. Within the team, we communicate extensively. Uh, I would say we're talking to each other every day besides having meetings a couple times a week, one kind of run the list meeting, uh, another meeting where we'll kind of drill down into one or two patients where we really wanna make sure that we're all on the same page with how we conceptualize what's going on. Um, and we'll just bring someone in, we'll start to understand, uh, we'll each do an intake, uh, we'll understand our pieces of the puzzle, we'll put them together, we'll see, uh, are there other people, uh, other care providers who would really benefit from understanding some of these behaviors, uh, or could we understand from them to get a better picture of what's going on and reach out as needed? Sometimes initial engagement is difficult, and so we try to be as creative as possible uh, with engaging people. Usually right after an ED visit or an admission, people are more uh, open uh, to engagement. And I think there are plenty of other programs uh, in our system that are recognizing that as well. Um, but sometimes it involves going through, if they've given permission to talk to family, family members, sometimes it's helping either, sometimes even getting involved with family members, sometimes going through other members of the care team who are trusted um, uh, to help develop that you know initial kind of get the foot in the door. Maybe I'll trust this person long enough to see what they have to say and then go from there. Um, so that that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Uh, and then we'll monitor uh, progress. We'll have an idea of what goals do we have for the patient? What are their goals? When can we tell that they're doing uh, that we've got the right we've got the right formula, the wheels are turning and we can step back and, and the boat's gonna not to mix metaphors, the boat's gonna keep sailing on its own. Um, and once we're at that point, we step back and we keep tabs a little bit and uh, and um, and and make sure that that we were right about that. It sounds like, which understandably, you're really living this concept that we apply where when patients' needs are standardized, like I need a central line, I could you know standardize the assessment who needs it and how to do it. But when patients' needs vary, I may standardize the assessment, but you have to personalize the interventions. And it sounds like your team very much takes that approach. So just going into trig, some of what your results were. Right. Um, so our results have been uh, limited a little bit to what we're able to look at right now, which is spend. Um, we are just now starting to collect more uh, data around, you know, measures of avoidance um uh measures of anxiety and depression uh burden of disease uh disability scales things like this that we're going to be um giving to patients periodically to see where they are 
um, to see, it, it'll help us clinically understand what we're doing right and wrong, uh, and also help eventually to look back and see what kind of changes we've made. Um, we're just starting to do that. Um, so most of what we have is either anecdotal or based on spend. Uh, spend has been quite significant. And so to try and avoid some other problems that, that we've seen in other studies, everyone's worried about regression to the mean, which means if you engage someone, uh, does it look like you helped them, but really they were going to get better anyway. They were just acutely ill and they recovered and that's that was to be expected. You really didn't make any difference at all. To try and control for that, uh, in our analysis, we've looked back two years prior to ever engaging with the patient. Uh, and we all, we've also identified a matched uh, uh, control group that's been risk matched, risk and demographically matched to the patients that we engage with. And we've seen that, uh, especially for high utilizers, um, I wish I, I wish I remember the percentage off the top of my head. Um, but I, I can give you numbers. I would say, I, I think the average for high utilizers was it decreased from about a per, per member per month from 8,000 to 6,000 per month, where the post is um, anyone who's been in our program for at least three months and we're looking for the average monthly spend since the moment we uh, enrolled them in the program. Um, so I think that you will- know, Victor, Craig, Let me just make sure the audience understands that. You know, that 8,000 per member per month spend, that's just slightly under $100,000 a year that these patients are expending. And that two thousand reduction is about a you know twenty five thousand dollar reduction, so you know, near a twenty five percent reduction from these interventions. Um, so I, I no doubt the science is immature, and, and you're the one maturing it. Trig, where do you see this program going, and how do you see ways that we could scale it to bring it to more people? <laughs> I think about that a lot. So. Um... Where I'm glad you think about that because I need you to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so where the program is right now, because uh, I don't think I, I've mentioned that yet, uh, we started this within the employee care plan, um, and that's where it currently sits. Uh, what we'd like to do is expand it to everyone, obviously, uh, and we're trying to figure out ways how to do that. The way I see the way I see this coming together, and this isn't just me. I've been talking to leaders throughout the system uh, to get people's feedback and ideas on this. But the way the way I imagine this going forward is um, instead of having kind of a floating team that sees people uh, via Zoom anywhere in the system, we'd be geographically embedded uh, either in a primary care clinic or in a in a region uh, where we serve multiple primary care clinics, where we don't only have relationships with the patients, but we have relationships with the staff. Uh, and the, and the uh, providers at that clinic. Um, and we can fully integrate uh, with the operations there. Um, I think we could leverage so many of the skills of this or some of the attributes of this program uh, in a better way if we were there with the, the care teams that, that are already you know boots on the ground working with patients um, uh, in more ways that I probably have time to get into. Uh, but that's where I see this going is integrating uh, in with clinics. Uh, and um, as far as scalability, uh, I think what we'll end up doing is recognizing patterns as we start to see, you know, this is personalized. Uh, but at, at some point, we're going to start to recognize, and I think we already are in some ways, there are common patterns uh, of complexity that we see, and we can become quicker at identifying those patterns. And then we may not even need a complex care team. 
uh, or, or a personalized care team to identify those patterns. That can be something that becomes integrated into a clinic's uh, uh, flow. And so, wow. yeah. Trig, fantastic work. And uh, let's follow up to make sure we do a pilot about integrating it in one of those practices, because I think that is the next evolution of this. And it was just been a delight to have you here today and share this amazing work that you do. And we're quite grateful for us. And as always, uh, we're working to leverage the power of love within and between people to radically improve the health and healthcare of those we serve. Thank you. Thanks for having me.